Hello, I'm Jeremy Allaire, and welcome to The Money Movement. I'm really pleased to be here in Paris, France, as part of Paris Blockchain Week and Circle Forum Paris, a very special time. And also very excited to have as our guest today, Circle's Chief Economist, Gordon Liao. Gordon, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. There's so much happening that impacts your world, our world together. I want to kind of introduce you and have you introduce yourself a little bit to the money movement audience. You found yourself as, uh, you know, in applied math at Harvard and navigated your way through some pretty significant roles in financial risk, the Federal Reserve, into crypto, into Uniswap, and now here with Circle as our chief economist. Most, I think, people think about chief economist roles in large banks in asset management firms, in assurance firms, things like that. I don't think people realize how vital the role of chief economist is in a kind of financial infrastructure company like Circle. And so maybe just start a little bit with, you know, your journey into into this whole space, but just more broadly, a little bit of your journey. And then I want to kind of land back at the kind of foundational role that you're playing as Circle's chief economist. Sounds good. So early on in my career, I started my career as a trader and portfolio manager at the Harvard Endowment. And it was there, you know, trading fixed income instruments, doing fixed income relative value trading, where I first saw how segmented markets are, various types of spreads all over the place. Part of that was a reflection of constraints on balance sheets of large intermediaries. And that really got me to go on this journey of studying market intermediation, understanding it from a policy angle, and later on, understanding it from a practical angle of how to address market intermediation frictions. Mm-hmm. So fast forward a couple of years, I was doing my doctoral uh, programming economics at Harvard. And that was when I was first introduced to Bitcoin. It was 2013. A lot of my really smart friends at Harvard was mining Bitcoin on the side. At the time, I thought, you know, this is quite interesting, but, you know, there's The application seemed rather limited. Sure, it's a store of value of some sort, but it was also highly speculative. It was not until a couple of years after when Ethereum really took off, while I saw this amazing promise of programmability that could replace some of the intermediary functions that are traditionally fulfilled by large banks or large broker dealers. That really got me excited. Now, when I was first introduced to the concept of stablecoin, or started paying attention to more to it, was actually when I was serving as an economist at the Federal Reserve Board of Governors in 2019, when the concept of Libra and later on called DM was first introduced, central bankers really paid attention because it is something that at the time seems like it could have challenged monetary sovereignty with the basket of currencies being the backing of that particular type of token. So at that time, I really got involved and started paying more attention and led some of the early work streams, uh, stablecoin, understanding both its potential, but also some risk. Yeah, when you've published and provided, in a sense, advice to the, to the Board of Governors on this critical topic of you know, the safety and soundness elements of stablecoins, different models for how they could work. Yeah, and I think there's so much more work to be done on that front. And fast forward around 2020 and 2021, when the DeFi summer was occurring, every week there's new protocols, new innovations coming about. And from someone who have both traded in the traditional finance world and have looked at 
market segmentations and frictions from a policy angle, this just seems like a really cool opportunity. And at that point, I jumped into the deep end and went to Uniswap to lead their research team and uh, worked on mechanism design, really dive deep into smart contracts. It was when last year when Terra and Luna happened, that's when I realized, you know, stablecoin is so core to this infrastructure that we're building up in decentralized finance. So having a well-backed, fully regulated stablecoin is fundamental to not just the DeFi industry, but also to this evolution of transforming finance uh, to reduce some of the f- financial risks that we have seen in the past. So that's when I decided to join Circle. And so far, it's been an amazing journey to work um, the economic agenda for Circle to think about the long-term business implications, business model of our USDC stablecoin and how that would potentially interact with both traditional finance as well as with central banking. That's awesome. There are a lot of directions we can take the conversation today. And we're, this episode is in the aftermath of a near collapse of a significant piece of the, the commercial bank arena in the United States with cascading issues continuing uh, over the weekend, the emergency bailout of a systemically important bank, Credit Suisse. So more pins to drop. I don't know, needles. To, I don't know what the shoes to drop. Who knows? And so it really sheds a light on this whole question of risk, this whole question of, you know, if you want to have a a digital fiat instrument, if you want to have a digital dollar that can take advantage of things like programmability and internet and blockchain infrastructure, like what's the appropriate design of that? And you've written about kind of the macro prudential risks of, you know, tokenized cash, which is a, a phrase that you use and, and we use to differentiate between, you know, tokenized, say, deposits, which is what a bank m- might issue. But maybe just start by talking about, you know, tokenized cash. What does that mean? AKA stable coins, right? A properly designed fiat stable coin that can exercise its role as a kind of tokenized cash. Maybe define that a little bit. And then we can get into sort of the risk characteristics and kind of monetary policy considerations as well. Yep. So tokenized cash is a term I use to refer both to the asset side that is backing USDC, but also the liability of USDC being a form of digital cash. So on the asset side, as you know, you know USDC currently is 80% in T-bills, backed by T-bills, and 20% in this cash equivalent deposit accounts at various banks. Of course, in the future, hopefully we'll see that 20% being eventually replaced by direct government obligation, perhaps a Fedmaster account, perhaps uh, directly having access to the central bank liability. And that would be you know, making up the asset component of the cash backing. But I think it's equally important to think about what exactly is tokenized cash replacing from a liability standpoint. Usually, money is a formal liability of someone. And typically, the most of the money in circulation, M2, are liabilities of commercial banks. So those are deposit accounts. And for central banks, there's also a huge component of central bank liability, which is the physical cash that's in circulation. In the United States, physical cash in circulation accounts for roughly a third of our Federal Reserve balance sheet. That's about to $2.3 trillion of 
80% of which are $100 bills. I see tokenized cash as a way of replacing, first and foremost, those physical cash that's in circulation, those $2 trillion plus of you know, $100 bills that's in circulation that's being used for various uh, purposes, both as a store of value, but also as a mean of payment. So it's really a combination of both speaking to the full reserve, safe asset backing of um, high quality short-term assets, as well as the liability component that it is trying to replace the physical cash that's in circulation with something that's more digital and 21st century. That's a helpful, helpful view. I, I think one of the things that there's, I think, generally a lot of confusion about, and you see this in the media, and you see this in crypto Twitter, and you see, and you sort of see this in even in policymaking circles where you have policymakers who have sat on banking committees and other uh, committees for a really long time, but kind of seem to miss some of the really fundamental issues of risk. And so, you know, I think one of the big questions, one of the big, you know, kind of you know, kind of questions is around liquidity and redeemability and kind of comparing the risk of, you know, what we think of as well-regulated bank money versus the risk of a stablecoin that is designed in the way that you've just described. And, you know, I think in one of your papers, you really focused on this sort of, if you applied the kind of risk framework that's applied to banks, the Basel III kind of uh, liquidity coverage ratio, you know, kind of model. And maybe you could define that in simple terms for, for the audience. But if you compare the kind of risk that it, the risks that exist around kind of liquidity in, say, traditional banking versus a full reserve digital dollar, you know, there, there's some fundamental differences. In, and I think that skews people's view on this. Yeah. So one of the papers I released last year was called Macro Potential Considerations for Tokenized Cash. The core part of analysis there was actually comparing this liquidity coverage ratio, which is a ratio of how much high-quality liquid asset there is relative to the expected outflow of deposits in the next 30 days, which is a very typical measure for prudential regulators to assess risk at uh, various banking organizations. By the way, LCR, uh, which is a Basel III implementation, actually doesn't cover, it's not actually required as an assessment for some of the smaller banks. So I think SVB was actually right. not uh, examining in that particular way. But looking at the comparison of how you know, USDC reserves are composed, which is 80% T-bills, 20% cash equivalent at banks, that liquidity coverage ratio was actually somewhere, depending on how the uh, assumptions are defined, roughly two to seven times the amount of a typical large globally systemic important bank. That means that USDC actually has quite a lot of liquidity, and this speaks to the ability for Circle to redeem, to issue stablecoin, to issue USDC at parity at an ongoing basis. And the ability to do so it's only possible because we hold such high amount of highly liquid short-term T-bills with maturity of less than three months. That is really a key piece is sort of, you know, in some ways, you know, what we saw happen with the collapse of SVB and we're sort of, sort of seeing 
emergency measures by the Federal Reserve to backstop the entire uninsured deposit base of a huge tier of, of commercial banking in the United States, you know, it, it kind of gets to this point that the real risk is the maturity mismatches and or the lending book risk that commercial banks have. And in fact, in this circumstance, it was the banks that imported risks to the stable coins, uh, n- not the other way around, which everyone's sort of saying, well, the, you know, we're going to need to worry about stable coins, you know, and, and their impact or crypto's impact on the banking sector is actually a little bit the reverse. But it, it does get to, I think, this kind of core question, which ties back to the work, you know, you've done in, in tokenized cash, which is what is the ideal design of a tokenized cash instrument that can gain the benefits of private sector issuance, private sector technology innovation on these constantly upgradable blockchain networks, participation in the programmability and openness of programmability that can drive all this innovation. At that base layer, you know, how do we get a design? How do we improve the design so that the world has access to a, a, a digital dollar infrastructure that can avoid this commercial bank risk, can avoid all the massive risks that commercial banks are importing into our payment systems. I think this is something where we continue to learn and grow as well as a company. You know, one area of improvement that requires federal regulation in the U.S. to actually enhance is a direct access to the payment realm. So we have to hold a certain amount of cash liquidity buffer at commercial banks today because we rely on commercial banks to fulfill the transactions for minting and burning conversion to fiat. Because the access to Fedwire to also the forthcoming FedNow system are exclusive to banks today. And that's a very unique thing for the US. For instance, many other countries have opened up uh, payment access, yeah. payment real access. I was literally on, on a video call with a central bank this morning who is opening up their real-time payment system to fintechs and to allow for that greater velocity of innovation. Yeah, I think I, you mentioned, you know, this time is actually an example of not crypto importing risk into banks, but banks importing risk into crypto. I think going further, I actually think that thinking about innovative payment solutions such as USDC it's actually a way to reduce the amount of systemic risk in the overall banking system by replacing part of those uninsured deposit base with something that more or less resembles a, a short-term fund structure in which you have also the alternative payment rails that's directly connected. So I, I see you know, one possibility of just reducing this overall risk of too big to fail in the banking system by helping the banks to focus on their core competency, which is, of course, you know, credit intermediation, some form of liquidity transformation. At the same time, you know, stripping away some of the unnecessary parts, such as payments, that you know, if you think about what happened with SVB, one of the main issues that was at the heart of uh, what people were worried about is for firms to meet their payroll obligations the following week. Of course, I think payroll and payment, that sort of narrowly defined set of services doesn't have to be linked to banking and could in fact be separated out and make those banks stronger in doing what they're good at, which is credit intermediation and replacing part of you know, what they're not, what they do not necessarily need to focus on, mm-hmm. which is payments. This goes like deep into the heart of contemporary kind of 
bank monetary uh, you know, theory and, and regulatory practice, right? We've talked on the money movement in, in, in multiple episodes about the Chicago plan, which, you know, of course, was in the aftermath of, of the Great Depression and all these mass bank failures. And, you know, at that, at that time, the Chicago plan, which was prominent group of economists suggesting a separation between the business of lending and the business of kind of government-assured money and payment systems. And the argument was that that would actually lead to a more, you know, less, less risky financial system. And that was, you know, less prone to, you know, booms and busts and recessions. And of course, instead, there was mutualized insurance was the answer, right? Well, we're going we're gonna to run all this together. We're going to bundle it all together. And if there happens to be a risk, we'll just have insurance. And that was the birth, of course, of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And I think that was the bank's preference was, let, we don't want to let go of this. We want to do this. Fast forward savings and loan crisis. Again, this issue became one that uh, emerged. And then again, you know, after the financial crisis, I think there were real uh, discussions about this and that played itself out into things like, you know, money market, you know, dollar money market structures and backstops on these. And like, you know, now today, if, if, you know, this has been for us, you know, a core philosophical tenant of USDC and, and of our belief in what dollar digital currency should be is this clear separation between the payment system and the payment infrastructure and the underlying you know, kind of liability or assets that, that you have, and then that kind of credit intermediation piece. And it, it seems like right now is a moment where you know, kind of governments could get this right. And in a world of like very high velocity you know, money transmission in digital currency form, it seems more important than ever to kind of get this right. And we'd love to hear your reflections on some of that. Yeah, so you're absolutely right in pointing out, historically, we consider the separation between banking and payment functions multiple times. But every time when it comes down to it, we kind of took the path of, well, we'll just put up more insurance for the banking sector. And also at the same time, more regulation, by the way, which actually constrains banks in many ways. For instance, FDIC insurance costs is likely going to rise because what we just saw, there's going to likely going to be a rise in FDI insurance costs, which actually distort market in some sense. There are very well documented research on how FDIC insurance costs distort the short-term funding market, the spread between uh, what is known as the Fed fund market rate versus the interest on excess reserve that requires arbitraging out by actually foreign banks and not based in the U.S., so along the way, every single step away, banks get larger and there's more layers of regulatory scrutiny put on top. And more recently, there's an announcement of uh, the mid-sized banks will get more scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And along the way, you have more market distortions of various forms. So in the environment which we're in, where balance sheets are getting larger for both commercial banks, as well as for the central bank, the only way to actually reverse this trend of ever-increasing balance sheet is to think about drastic changes that involves potentially separating out some of the functions of banking. So if you look at you know, the balance sheet of SVB before it collapsed, it's actually it's quite interesting to see that the vast majority of assets it was holding was long-duration treasuries and MBS securities. That's more than half of its uh, asset holdings, against which it was the vast majority of deposits or uninsured deposits. You know, I think it could very well be argued that 
you know, they're not really fulfilling the traditional way of banking in terms of making self-information uh, intensive type of loans. Rather, they kind of resemble a fund structure mm -hmm. that has just you know, uh, marketable securities mm -hmm. against uninsured deposits. Mm -hmm. I do think there is, this is a critical time for regulators to reflect on, you know, should banks be that large if they're just holding securities that could be held in a bond fund or a money market fund, or perhaps through decentralization in a structure such as, mm -hmm. you know, a, a compound or Aave type of, um, type, type of platform. So we're getting to this place where, and, and, you know, there's potential legislation to define a payment stable coin and to define it in a way where it's federally supervised, has access to the Fed's accounts and payment rails and could hold, you know, nearly all of its assets in these both short term T-bills and in, in, in sort of, you know, Federal Reserve account cash. You know, that seems like it could be the safest kind of digital dollar in the world. And that would be something that businesses, households, people who want to build it and integrate it into their programmable uh, wallets and smart contracts and so on, that, like, that could be the right kind of foundation. But there's this other alternative that we're hearing proposed of, you know, instead of tokenized cash, let's have tokenized deposits. And a lot of banks are out, you know, saying, hey, you know, this is, this is a, a way to go. And even central banks are saying, well, we could have tokenized deposits. It, it seems like, to me at least, the idea of tokenized deposits is just taking that same embedded risk and transferring it into a token that's on the internet. And that seems even more risky. You know, I, I think maybe just comment on the risks of tokenized deposits and the challenges with those versus a payment stablecoin or tokenized cash model such as USDC. Yeah, so even before this recent collapse of SVB and some of the other banks, I think tokenized deposits as a concept already raised questions of you know, how stable would it be when you have basically tokenized, fractionally reserved banking on top of something that operates 24-7 on, on the blockchain. Because we've seen how the deposits are traded also on traditional markets in which there is a spread. They're not always priced one-to-one in the sense that there is differential interest rates. In the Fed fund market, there is quite a large spread between the interest rates are paid on deposits of some of the worst quality banks versus uh, the higher quality banks. So even before this round that happened on SVB, we already observed this. But this recent collapse of SVB really crystallized the idea that combining something that's fractionally reserved with, a, with just modern communication, digitization, the fast speed of social media, would just accentuate any sort of wrong type of scenario. So having tokenized deposit on blockchain where it is operating 24-7 at the speed of light, and you have basically a relatively illiquid asset base, I think it's a recipe for an unstable stablecoin in, in, in many ways. So I think regulators need to look very closely and study from this experience of what happened with SVB and what happened with some of the other banks to really see, does it make sense to tokenize something that is inherently less sound from a liquidity standpoint, also inherently has issues with transparency. Let's remember that you know for most of blockchain, most of uh, and also USDC, you know there's quite a bit of transparency building with 
reserve attestation right now for USDC. We will have this you know, daily reporting from the USDXX fund. But for banks, oftentimes the filings are once a quarter. Mm-hmm. And that lack of transparency also raised quite a, issue, quite a bit of issues with how runnable those will be when, when those reports are only coming in once a quarter. Yeah. Certainly, the, the, the money in the bank does not have the same transparency as, as sort of current practice in, in stablecoins. But, you know, I, I think one of the other big questions that often gets raised is, or objections is, well, if you have such a safe instrument, such as a USDC that's basically held in, in T-bills and, and in true cash, cash equivalency with direct Federal Reserve access, you know, to the market, I think they say that's a huge innovation, this a digital version of that that can be woven into, you know, as a medium of exchange and as a unit of account and as something can be woven into the building up of internet-based financial systems. I want to come back to that. But the, the sort of objection is, is, well, you know, everyone will just want to hold their money there uh, in times of crisis. And you've also done some research on this kind of question of the ability for a, an instrument like that to not disrupt the, you know, the kind of a- existing, you know, kind of money multiplication goals that the central bank has. And part of that I want to come back to is, is sort of the money velocity and, and, the, and the credit intermediation that is possible with a digital dollar like a USDC. But let's put that aside, maybe just first address this sort of concentration of, of de-risking that people talk about. Yeah, you know, I think credit intermediation is always on the mind of, um, you know, central banks that commercial banks fulfill this role of intermediating, intermediating credit. And this is something that I raised as well at the Federal Reserve. You know, if stable coin, stable coins get way too large, then potentially it could compete with deposits. But I don't think we're nearly as close to that situation. Again, you know, overall amount of stable coin circulation is less than 200 billion versus the first area where I think stablecoin would actually compete with is cash. That's again, in the US is more than two trillion and globally is multi-trillion dollars. So I think by replacing some part of the physical cash in circulation, instead of crowding out deposits, you can actually crowd in deposits because you're converting the physical cash into a digital uh, asset where it's backed by T-bills, it's backed by central bank money. Well, to purchase T-bills on the other side, of course, this T-bill sellers most likely will deposit the proceeds back into the banking system. Yeah. So I think in many ways, it is so far away from crowding out uh, deposits, rather it's more than likely to crowd in deposits. And that's actually beneficial for the, um, for the banking system. And so there's trillions of dollars of bringing in d- deposit value is sort of the, the argument at a base layer. I think you know the other piece of this is is again for a lot of people a leap of faith, but as someone who's worked in DeFi, worked in in uh, intermediation that can be software powered, I think one of the things that you know we're very excited about is if you have this base layer of money on the internet that is like a straight through kind of government obligation money in a digital form that can be tokenized and then works on these blockchain networks. You actually have an incredible material to build with. And, and for the first time, really ever, credit intermediation can actually become something that is in many ways safer than it is in the existing banking system, where you can have, you know, blockchain-based software, which provides credit intermediation mechanics 
risk, you know, risk mitigation that's provable, auditable in real time, market access on a global basis to participate in these nascent credit pools that essentially are could achieve internet scale. And, and so you, you know, sort of decentralized or hybrids of sort of CFI, DeFi, but on blockchain based credit intermediation combined with the fact that, you know, money velocity with a digital dollar that, like you said, moves at the speed of light and has a transaction cost approaching zero, you have the ability to, to essentially have the sort of uh, the combination of those actually, I think, theoretically achieve the money multiplier goals that a, that a bank, a central bank has, which is about stimulating economic activity to achieve similar goals without having money creation happening and fraction, fractionally reserved kind of behaviors. And you know, just maybe talk a little bit about you know, what you're seeing in credit intermediation that can be done entirely in a tokenized cash instrument versus in the legacy fractional reserve banking system. Yep. So whenever I think about decentralized finance, and people have different definitions, how I de- define decentralized finance, a critical piece of it is the decentralization of balance sheets. And yeah, I would say even before going to the tokenization of cash and the usage of uh, the blockchain rails to enable on-chain credit lending, we're already seeing a decentralization of balance sheet occurring in the traditional banking sector in that you know, most of the banks today originate loans and they syndicate them and then they move off balance sheet or they hold syndicated loan themselves. Right? So in many ways, banks are already on this trend of decentralizing away their balance sheets, not that they hold on to portfolio loans anymore. And I think the ability for blockchain, for tokenized cash to come in, that just speed up that process of decentralization of balance sheet for uh, these traditional intermediaries. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, absolutely. With the amount of information that one could also gain from payment activities that are recorded on chain, you're able to enable these previously unattainable type of lending that use information from, for instance, whether a firm have settled their invoicing for a particular trade, Mm -hmm. whether the importers, exporters have received their goods, uh, maybe potentially with the Internet of Things uh, building. Transparency, auditability, real-time visibility, just not possible in the opaque banking system that we have today, uh, unless you're able to be a unique firm that sort of stands in a centralized data collection uh, to do that. But this could be, make that, the risk decisioning, right, that goes into something like credit decisioning be much more accessible. Yep, it is open banking, but way beyond the limited form of open banking that some of the countries have tried to experiment with APIs. Rather, is open banking where you know every developer out there yeah. could access, could yeah. build on. Yeah, so maybe ties into another topic that I know you've been thinking about as well, which is you know all of this data and all this transactional data you know, out on the internet when, you know, we we sort of see these issues in just the movement of companies' operations to the internet, the data security and privacy and and, and all the risks with, you know, cyber sort of attacks and everything else. I think one of the criticisms of, well, if you have these open blockchains and you have all these transactions, isn't that actually going to erode privacy and, you know, for a corporation, right, if you can see, anyone can see, like, all my invoice flows, like, that's a huge competitive issue and, and so on. And, 
you know, what do you see as the sort of technology solutions that are kind of emerging now and on the horizon that can help, you know, provide a degree of privacy, but also maintain compliance that's important for, for corporations and financial institutions and kind of unlock some of the use cases you just described, but, but kind of w- with greater security? Yeah, it's always a delicate balance between how much privacy to provide versus, you know, how transparent you want to make sure that there is no illicit financing and, you know, some degree of fraud or hacking going on. I think for a privately issued stablecoin, we're actually at a place where we could drive a lot of this innovation. So Verte, for instance, being one of the protocols for decentralized identity is part of that uh, perhaps solution. But there's also many other things going on, very exciting developments in the space of uh, using ZK uh, technology, zero knowledge knowledge proof to verify transactions in a uh, privacy centric way that still have a viewing key for regulators if needed. I think that does the idea of having everything being run by the central bank or by the government, I think it's just too much of a easy target. One for hacking type of activities, but also for the protection of privacy. So you could have, you know, uh, let's say I'm uh, Corporation X and I'm doing all my internet finance and commerce using blockchains and stable coins and smart contracts and others. I could, in theory, using these kinds of protocols that use zero knowledge proofs, I could, in theory, for example, provide uh, a viewing key with the appropriate kind of data sampling to my auditing firm uh, who needed to kind of verify transactions. Or I could potentially provide a viewing key uh, to some, some, you know, access to that to a, a credit pool that needed to be able to access some of that to actually make recommendations or decisions around the issuance of credit or other things. And so the, or if, you know, the financial institution that actually provides the, the, you know, digital wallet, uh, business wallets, let's just say, uh, for the business, they might have an obligation, you know, to be able to kind of do transaction monitoring and, you know, determine if something's a problem, but without, you know, seeing everything and, and or large or suspicious transactions or other things. And, and then, you know, kind of cascading levels of kind of disclosure as needed. It sounds like you're describing a system a little bit like that. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, viewing key could potentially be useful for some of the regulators as well when they need to investigate certain type of activities with the appropriate court order, but not at any time at their whim. So I think that sort of structure of balancing between privacy and security and ability to have some level of, you know, user supplied transparency, I think it could go a long way, not just in finance, but also you just think about, you know, this is the difference between web two and web three in that web three, you're, you're, you're owning the data, not just yeah. having your data being owned by some very large tech company. Right, totally. I know uh, in your role as Circle's chief economist, you're engaged with central bankers around the world. You're engaged with supranational policymaking bodies that are that are looking at the whole international monetary system and and these emerging you know issues. You know, with the recent turmoil that we've seen. And, you know, the, the kind of commercial bank uh, risk importing itself into something like USDC, you know, what's your message to those central bankers? What's your message to those, you know, leaders of the international monetary system? What are you saying to them today? Yeah. So to the central bankers, you know, to get back 
to the goal of balancing between the dual mandate, the, the fighting inflation and balancing between unemployment. To address the systemic risk, you had to address the root cause. And the root cause of systemic risk in part is concentration of risk in large financial institutions. And that could only be addressed through more drastic overhaul of financial system. I also do think that you know, central bankers have been talking about and have been um, trying to shrink down the balance sheets of their central banks, uh, their own balance sheets, which has held some issues in the past. The only way to actually make a change and shrink down the balance sheet is actually by unbundling payments. If you look at how the Federal Reserve balance sheet look like, to reduce the asset holding the Fed has, it has to reduce the liabilities first. And to reduce the liabilities, there's two of the three components of liabilities is rather large. That's all related to payment. One is this, you know, $2.3 trillion of physical cash in circulation. The other one is this, you know, around $3 trillion of reserves, access reserves that are basically the, the commercial bank's checking account at the central bank for the purpose of fulfilling intra-bank payment, intraday payment for, for interbank payment activities. So to effectively get the balance sheets of central banks back to a more attainable size that doesn't raise questions about their independence, I think it is really important at this particular moment to re-examine some of the rules related to access to payment, related to unbundling payment services. And it's only by addressing the financial stability risk then they could then tackle the price stability risk that we face today. Incredible. Gordon, great conversation. It's obviously a pleasure to be working on all these issues together with you. And uh, I'm so glad you could join the Money Movement today for, I think, a really important set of conversations that hopefully you know, listeners uh, and policymakers and others will, will, uh, will tune into as well. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. 